Another end of the world is possible. This is hell, and one way this world ends, possibly, is through war. On August 2nd, 1990, the U.S. and Iraq went to war in what was known as the Gulf War, which lasted until March 4th, 1991, 30 years and one week ago today. The Gulf War ended, but the war did not end for the people of Iraq as they then became targeted by a 12-year economic war of sanctions against Iraq. Sanctions that were arguably far more brutal than the militarized Gulf War, killing at minimum an estimated half a million Iraqi children. Then, only 12 years and a couple of weeks later, the U.S. war on Iraq, its invasion and occupation of the country began anew which makes it all seem like one long 30-year war by the U.S. on Iraq that seemingly is still not quite yet over. We'll discuss the 30-year legacy of U.S. and Allies' war on Iraq in a few, and we will be welcoming back past guest award-winning international peace activist Kathy Kelly, who wrote the progressive article, Remembering the First Gulf War Amid the Ongoing Horror, It's Important to Find Ways to atone for war crimes, including reparations. Kathy has worked for nearly half a century to end military and economic wars. At times, her activism has led her to war zones and prisons, as we will be discussing with Kathy in a few. Kathy was on most recently in July of 2019 when she talked about her articles for... uh, Voices for Creative Nonviolence, including the ongoing dread in Gaza, so many names, so many lives, and remnants of war. This is Kathy's one millionth appearance here on This Is Hell. You can find five of the interviews that we have done with her at our website, thisishell.com, when you search on Kathy's name. We want to thank listener Robert P. for bringing Kathy's progressive article to our attention, and that's why we're having Kathy on. So thanks, Robert, for suggesting we have Kathy back on the show. Also, on today's show, we'll have the rest of your answers to this week's Question from Hell. We'll tell you what's happening on our Patreon podcast tomorrow, Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time at patreon.com slash podcast shortly after at the same place. And we'll be telling you what's happening on This Is Hell next week. We just booked somebody for Monday for some breaking news that took place over the last couple of days. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, this is the first time we've been seeing each other this week. How was your week gone so far i see <laughs> pretty good week huh no nah, it's been a rough week uh, uh, <laughs> i experienced my first pang of being uh, angered at something that my kid learned in uh at school so i know teachers are usually uh sympathetic characters on uh, left media we gotta do something about what they're teaching kids these days they're teaching my kid about leprechauns <laughs> is it wrong to have a problem with that it's a cryptid <laughs> like let's just keep it materialist over here <laughs> Got a three-year-old thinking there's leprechauns now. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm legit kind of a little bit mad about it. I'm not going to say anything, but... So you do not allow Lucky Charms in your home? 
I try so hard to keep him away from like any sort of intellectual property. <laughs> Next door, during all Christmas season, uh, our neighbors had a like a probably a twelve foot inflatable minion, mm-hmm. little Santa hat on. This is and I'm not doing I'm not doing the work of all these. Uh, uh, I'm not doing the intellectual property enforcement work of all these people. So my kid would ask, "What is that?" And I just told him it was a worker. <laughs> I I. Can't. One of the reasons that I could not have kids is I know that there is a requirement in the United States of America for you to continue to have custody of your children. You have to take them to some sort of Disneyland or Disney World. And I went to one of those places once when I was 18, and I was really surprised that at the top of Space Mountain I didn't jump off. So I did not want to go through that experience again. It wasn't really the clinching thing, but sure was part of it. My week has been exhausting mentally, physically, and in every way completely exhausting, and I'm looking forward to sleeping as much as possible over the next few days. Good Lord. I don't know what's worse, emotional or physical exhaustion. I really don't know. Working for 12, 14 hours, I've done hard labor for 12, 14 hours in a day, and I swear to God, having somebody in your family die is far more exhausting. More importantly, Alex... Did you hear about what happened to the chickens next door? Uh, no, I know that apartment building is cleared out and there's no chickens. Uh, is it bad news? Let me tell you what the owner of Carrie's Lounge downstairs, downstairs, Pete Valavanis, he saw the woman who owns the chickens and he said to her, hey, what happened to the chickens? And Alex, you got to look at me. She said, <laughs> she drew her finger across her throat and made a slicing noise. <laughs> So the chickens are no more. Mel no longer can be mean to the chickens. But even more importantly than that, Alex, please remind us, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what is the name of that top secret government weed strain? What is the name of that top secret government weed strain? A question from hell I'm embarrassed to ask every single time that there's an important guest on the whole. <laughs> Listen again. I know Ruth Milkman yesterday, I was wondering how she was feeling about the question. I know Kathy doesn't give a shit. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever. This is hell merchandise you want. You can see all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But we have to have your answer By the end of today's show, following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth, during this week's Moment of Truth, Jeff visits the playground of blood. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell, following our guest. Again, this week's question is, what's the name of that top-secret government weed strain? Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. We got a message via Facebook from listener No Whack Wolf, who writes, Good day. Can we get Keith Harmon Snow on air for his perspective on this mess in Rwanda and Congo? Thank you, and keep up the great work. NOAC includes a link to Keith Harmon Snow's Al Jazeera article. Hutu rebels accuse DRC Rwanda after Italian ambassador killed Luca Antanasio. Died of his wounds after a World Food, ba- Food Program convoy came under, the, under fire near the eastern city of Goma. The lead reports Rwandan Hutu rebels denied allegations they were behind the killing of the Italian ambassador to the Democratic Republic of the Congo and instead accused the armies of the DRC and Rwanda of responsibility. So thanks, Nowak. We'll look into Keith's writing because we do want to have more coverage of issues and events in Africa as those are regularly ignored in the media. And this is not the media. This is hell. Brett also dropped us a quick note saying, I keep hearing y'all call for workers, even remote ones. I'm remote. I can do stuff. So if you are a person, which is a criteria for the position here on our show, and you are remote like Brett or 
local. We are looking for people to help out on the show, not only on air, but behind the scenes. If you are interested in becoming part of the crew here at thisishell.com, email me at chuck at thisishell.com or email alex at alex at thisishell.com. We'll tell you exactly the kind of work we need done. So thanks for asking, Brett. Remember, you too can email us, message us via Facebook or Twitter with your thoughts and suggestions on the show. And if you do, we'll likely read them on air. And if we have your guest suggestion on the show, we'll personally thank you on the show for your suggestion, like we are doing for Robert P. today for bringing Kathy's newest article, The Progressive, to our attention. Coming up, Iraq 30 years after the end of the Gulf War. We'll also have Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth during this week's moment. Again, Jeff visits the playground of blood. Alex will have more of your answers to this week's question from hell again, which is what's the name of that top secret government weed strain? Person with our favorite answer gets whatever piece of This Is Hell merchandise they want. Leave your answer or your Facebook page, tweet it to us, email it to us. But we have to have it by the end of today's show. Live from the nightmare of want, this is Hell, it's been 30 years and one week since the end of the Gulf War. But after that war ended, a new economic war was launched against the people of Iraq. After that, there was the 2003 U.S. war, invasion, and occupation of the country. Here to help us have a better understanding of the long, long legacy of war by the United States and its allies against Iraq and its people, Award-winning international peace activist Kathy Kelly wrote the progressive article, Remembering the First Gulf War Amid the Ongoing Horror, It's Important to Find Ways to Atone for War Crimes, Including Reparations. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Kathy. Well, thank you, Chuck. It's good to be back on your show. Oh, my God, it's so great to hear your voice. This is Kathy's one millionth appearance on This Is Hell. She was on most recently in July of 2019 when she talked about her articles for Voices for Creative Nonviolence, including the ongoing dread in Gaza, so many names, so many lives, and remnants of war. Again, thanks to Robert P. for bringing Kathy's latest writing to our attention. Now, usually I'd be introducing you as co-coordinator of Voices for Concern Nonviolence, but according to Voices' website, the campaign ended on December 31st, 2020. Why did the campaign end, and what do you think it achieved? Well, we certainly, as a group of people over 25 years, were incredibly fortunate. We were able to build relationships with people who could help us better understand United States wars of choice. And we quite often did that by going to the places where the wars were happening in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Um, We had traveled to Gaza several times. So we were um, fortunate in that way. You know, now in a time of climate catastrophe, I think, you know, the question of international travel really becomes a bigger question. And uh, we also, in a time of COVID, weren't traveling. And so we thought, well, perhaps this is the time to bring that particular campaign to a close. But no one that I know who's been active with it is at all saying we're not going to remain active. Uh, There's so much to do right now to try to bring an end to the continued uh, war making and uh, just vile production of weaponry and sale of weaponry around the world. You referred to America's wars as wars of choice, yet the United States constantly, whenever we do go to war, whenever the United States does go to war, they always try to frame it as it was a position that was forced upon us, that we had no choice, that it was the last resort. 
Why do you believe that these are wars of choice instead of wars being due to having no choice? Well, you know, one clip that uh, a friend of mine who is actually now in prison for protesting nuclear weapons, Carmen Trada, has said is that uh, formerly people may have manufactured weapons to wage wars, but in our world, the United States uh, goes to war in order to sell weapons. And I think that in terms of wars of choice, the United States has continued to practice a colonial attitude that says, uh, we can take over your resources. If you do not subordinate your country to serve our national interests, we will crush you. And the United States can then say, if you don't believe us, look at Iraq. And there's always a cloak of moral righteousness. And in the case of Iraq, Certainly, Iraq should not have invaded Kuwait. You know, countries aren't allowed to just go in and take over other countries. But the hypocrisy of the United States, which had just, uh, this was back in 1990 that Iraq invaded Kuwait. The United States had previously invaded Panama, invaded Grenada. And I think it was really only because of just consistent grassroots popular uh, resistance that the United States didn't invade several other countries and try to take them over in Central and South America. So the United States has had a long history of describing its vital interests that must be defended in terms of protecting our ability to, to take other people's precious and irreplaceable resources at cut rate prices or to have geopolitically strategic bases in other people's countries. It's, it, there's been an enormous insistence on control and fulfilling that through wars of choice. And you quote President George H.W. Bush at the time saying that the United States doesn't allow larger co- countries to swallow up smaller countries, referring Iraq to Kuwait. So why does the United States, why do you think the United States and its government wants people to believe that the United States is the little guy, is not the big guy, is the little guy who is helping out the little guy? What's the, what's the point of having that framing that the United States is the, not the big bad country that swallows up other countries, but the one who helps out the little guy? Well, I think there's thin support for wars. Um, and, and, and in a way, the United States has said, well, we're going to kick that Vietnam syndrome. You know, after the Vietnam War, there was extremely thin support for the United States going into uh, another aggressive war, wherein there would be um, thousands of people coming back in body bags, and people would see on the nightly news these gruesome attacks against Vietnamese children with napalm. So I think the United States um, military wanted to promote the idea of, I mean, it's certainly an oxymoron, but humanitarian wars, uh, the responsibility to protect the idea that somehow uh, other dictators are so cruel and so abusive and um, irrational and must be stopped. And that's a, that's a way to market wars to uh, a sometimes gullible public. But when people are informed, when the media isn't suppressing uh, real documents and real events that are taking place, I think there's far less 
readiness to support wars, although it certainly is true increasingly uh, that our major industries require wars in order to continue to manufacture weapons. Has the pandemic given cover for war, made it so there is less criticism and scrutiny of war? Can can crises, whether it's climate change or the pandemic, distract us from the very, very important issue of war? Mm, well, you know, if we take a look at the worst humanitarian crisis constantly unfolding in the world today, then we must look at Yemen. And uh, there, the United Nations is saying there could be 2.5 million Yemeni children suffering from severe acute malnourishment. Children, if they do survive, never really recover from that hideous kind of malnourishment that affects their growth, their development, their brain power. The, um, the, the struggle to present that awareness to people in the United States is, is certainly, certainly uphill. It was interesting to me, Chuck, to learn that Saudi Arabia, which has been helped enormously by the United States in waging this war, I mean, still, as far as I can tell, in Marinette, Wisconsin, four big, they call them littoral combat ships, are being manufactured for sale to Saudi Arabia through a Lockheed Martin contract, and the Saudis use those ships to blockade Yemen's ports. And that's one of the reasons that there's such a huge crisis in terms of importation of desperately needed fuel. Well, um, Saudi Arabia is hiring public relations consulting firms to improve the image of Saudi Arabia, not in D.C. or New York, but in Des Moines, Iowa, in parts of Maine, in North Carolina. And, and their strategy is to sort of give up on the idea of repairing the image of Saudi Arabia after, you know, they call uh, Mohammed bin Salman Mr. Bonesaw after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, but also um, the war in Yemen. But if they go to places where most people have never heard of war, against Yemen, of Yemeni children starving, then they can focus on this kind of cool new prince who's um, going to allow women to drive and is beginning to come up with innovative reforms. And that that's, I think, um, the presumption, it, it speaks of the presumption that the United States is a nation of big children who can be cajoled through entertainment and sports and uh, cool figures <laughs> celebrity figures to be totally distracted from the actual militarism and militarization that predominates in our society. So it it gives us our work to do, doesn't it? Yeah, it's the obsession with the celebritification of culture instead of what is the reality of culture. How, How much hope do you have for the Biden administration when it comes to the many ongoing wars around the world that continue due to the legacy of the war on terror, including a war that you were just mentioning, but a war that you and I have discussed here on the show before, a war that you've been active in protesting, and that is the war in Yemen. Do Biden's moves so far uh, signal a change when it comes to U.S. support for war? Because, you know, there seems to be contradictory moves. There seems to be him, you know, reconsidering American U.S. support for the, uh, Saudi Arabia in the war in Yemen. But at the same time, there's the Biden bombing of Syria without congressional support. So how much hope do you have for the Biden administration when it comes to war? 
Well, I think we have to acknowledge that, as was true of the Obama administration, we are looking at people in the um, administration who are centrists and militarists. Uh, You know, prior to the election of Joe Biden, David Calhoun, who is the CEO of Boeing, headquartered in Chicago, said to shareholders, um, you know, as far as our defense uh, Boeing's defense system and sales, uh, he said, I don't think we have to worry no matter who is in the White House. Uh, the United States is always going to want to defend its democracy. And, you know, that, that's supposed to be swallowed. Well, I think the Biden administration has not come out clearly and said that uh, people in Yemen are no threat to the United States whatsoever. They've said that they're going to be allied with Saudi Arabia, no matter what, they'll help Saudi Arabia protect itself. And so, you know, people can look at the various weapons that the United States continues to sell to Saudi Arabia and just say, oh, yeah, well, that's defensive, not offensive. Um, We haven't seen the blockade lifted, and the United States, with a phone call, could very likely prevail on Saudi Arabia to lift that blockade. But instead, I believe they're using United States manufactured ships to enforce the blockade. Uh, So I I don't think that um, President Biden is being faithful to the people who put him in office when he then turns over foreign policy to people who are actually quite hawkish and willing to continue uh, using uh, U.S. manufactured weapons in order to bludgeon other countries into submission. And that's one of my biggest concerns, Kathy, is the growing dependence of the U.S. economy on the military-industrial complex, and that the increasing chance that if you know the United States wants to not support a war, then that would hurt American jobs, that that would hurt people back home, that we have an economy that is based on the exportation of war. How can we change having an economy that's based on a military industrial complex that's based on distributing weapons of mass destruction all over the world? Well, I think education, education, education is crucial. We have to keep educating people to understand exactly what you just said. Uh, The greed is uh, unlimited on the part of the military contractors. Uh, There was just a report that uh, as the Cold Wars against China and Russia are stoked and promoted, the United States now plans to once again create the silos underneath the farmers' fields in the Midwest and other places where intercontinental ballistic missiles with nuclear warheads are buried under the ground. Well, this is a return to a Cold War mentality that requires people to be fearful, be fearful of the Russians, be fearful of the Chinese. And so I think we need to continually assert to people that the greatest terror facing us is the terror of what we're doing to our own environment, the terror of what we're doing in terms of contamination, pollution, overconsumption, and inability to cope with climate catastrophes. And we can't really have a rational discussion about how to redress that if we don't discuss dismantling the incredibly bloated military budget 
So I think that every pulpit that we have, in a sense, through which to preach this message is important. But also, I think it's important to tell the stories of the people who are forced into seeking refuge, who are displaced from their lands, who are hungry, who are maimed, who are bereaved as a consequence of our wars. We are speaking with peace activist Kathy Kelly, who wrote the progressive article, Remembering the First Gulf War. For the, for the people of Iraq, Kathy, to what extent is the war over and what would it take for the war in Iraq to be over? Well, the you know, war isn't over when it's over is something that um, is a truism about wars. Anne Jones had entitled a book that way, writing about Afghanistan. You know, the number of people who fled from Iraq included many of the people who were uh, top-notch in terms of health care delivery and uh, investigation of how to distribute needed goods. And there were people who left Iraq who, um, you know, constituted more or less a brain drain. The uh, distribution of ordnance all across that country is still plaguing the country. The reality that uh, United States troops still refuse to leave, even though they've been requested to leave. The uh, trauma that's been sustained by people who were kidnapped, people who were tortured, people who um, lost loved ones in the vicious shock and awe bombing in the the 1991 war. It's been a legacy of destruction and cruelty and very, very difficult for countries to, to survive that kind of history. But this doesn't mean that a new generation couldn't develop within Iraq with a determination to rebuild and to overcome some of the differences that have been exacerbated through the, um, the the incredible violence and war making, but one important thing is to stop allowing weapons to go into Iraq. I think uh, the Pope, apparently reflecting Pope Francis following his trip to Iraq, said he has a question: Who brings the weapons? into these situations. And I think the United States has been responsible for saturating Iraq with weaponry, and that certainly ought to stop. And you write that prior to the March 5th to March 8th visit by Pope Francis to Iraq, security concerns were high, and I won't begin to second-guess the itinerary that has been developed, but knowing of his eloquent and authentic plea to end wars and stop the pernicious weapons trade, I wish that Francis could kneel and kiss the ground at the Amaria shelter in Baghdad there on February 13, 1991, during the Gulf War II. 2,000-pound U.S. laser-guided missiles killed 400 civilians, mostly women and children. Another 200 were severely wounded. I wish President Joe Biden could meet the Pope there, and ask him to hear his confession. How did you feel about the Pope's visit last weekend? Do you think that that he bridged any divide? After all, he did have a historic meeting with uh, Iraq's most revered Shia cleric, Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani. So do you think that this is a step towards peace? Is it just, just another piece of symbolism we'll forget in the future? Well, I, I want to keep my eyes and ears open to see what reflections emerge following this visit. When the world's attention was on the Pope, um, I didn't hear a strong 
sense of remorse for what the invading and occupying countries have done to Iraq. Uh, I believe that the creation of ISIS directly stemmed from the viciousness of the United States war making against Iraq and all the years of economic sanctions in between the desert storm and the shock and awe bombing. Um, Will Pope Francis eventually speak more about the effect of of warfare against Iraq? I'm not sure, but I do know that uh, we all have a responsibility to raise our voices as best we can. Uh, And certainly uh, the call in the past uh, on the part of Pope Francis for, for mercy is something that ought to be voiced in every um, pulpit across Catholicism around the world. And I, I, I think often instead there's a sort of a an acceptance that really the main religion in a place like the United States is militarism. And the, the traditional religions are kind of a smokescreen for that militarism that actually dominates so much in our, our society and our culture. You mentioned the cruelty of ISIS, and in your writing, you described the highway of death boxed in by U.S. forces. This is during the Gulf War in 1991. Boxed in by U.S. forces, many Iraqis abandoned their vehicles and ran away from what had become a huge and very dangerous traffic jam. Iraqis attempting to surrender were struck were stuck in a long line of Iraqi military vehicles. They were systematically slaughtered, and you also described the horrible events that the New York Times reports. Army officials said Iraqi soldiers who died remained in their trenches as plow-equipped trucks dumped tons of earth and sand onto them, filling the trenches to ensure that they could not be used as cover from which to fire on allied units that were poised to pour through the gaps. Three days later, viewing photos of gruesome carnage caused by the ground and air attacks, President George H.W. Bush called for a cessation of hostilities on February 27, 1991. An official ceasefire was signed on March 4th. Did the U.S. cruelty, did those two actions, which I'm, I'm no expert, but they sound like they're verging on war crimes, do you think that that cruelty and brutality by the United States made Iraqis more cruel and susceptible to joining organizations like ISIS? Well, the cruelty never let up. I mean, recall that hundreds of thousands of children died of starvation in Iraqi hospitals during the period of economic sanctions when Iraqis were isolated, cut off, constantly punished for a dictator's actions, and they couldn't control Saddam Hussein. He was cruel and he was ruthless, but uh, people had no possibility of rising up. Recall that uh, following the United States invasion and occupation in 2003, uh, sprawling prison camps were set up. I happened to visit one of them, the Buka compound in the south of Iraq. And I can tell you, I, it's about the worst place I ever experienced in my life. And and people that were imprisoned there were held without charge. They were held under uh, despicable conditions. And Ali Baghdadi, was imprisoned there and also in Abu Ghraib. And he was the person who then um, recruited people to form ISIS. So, yes, of course, what what else could we expect when there's a consistent imposition of humiliation and violence and cruelty and abuse 
on a group of people who meant the U.S. no harm, what would we expect but that there would be twisted and cruel uh, understandings of, of, of what are, what's necessary to survive and to gain power? ISIS was always a... Uh, a, a terrifying reality, but but we must not kid ourselves about how terrifying United States aerial attacks and in, imprisonment and torture have been to the people that we have so brutally bludgeoned and punished. So prior to the war with Iraq in 2003, the world witnessed the largest ever global protests, protests that were against the upcoming war. The largest protests ever could not stop the 2003 war. So in Scientific American, there is reports of a new study that shows where Black Lives Matter protests took place in the United States over the summer. Police violence actually decreased. The argument is protest works if the largest worldwide protest ever could not stop the Iraq war. What impact do you think protests can and do have when it comes to war? Well, I think we should linger over that largest protest ever because it came closer than ever before to stopping a war before it started. And how did those protesters learn about conditions in Iraq? How did they learn enough to be indignant? Certainly not because the mainstream media was putting forth analysis and reporting on actual events happening in Iraq for people that were uh, just barely surviving the economic sanctions. You were reporting it, Chuck, and a, a handful of alternative media. But the way that people became educated enough to get out there and protest was through a remarkable grassroots movement, and much of it was furthered by people who went over to Iraq in delegation after delegation. I myself helped organize 70 delegations of people to go over to Iraq and upon return, hit the ground running, educating people. And also in the 80s, there was a very resilient and uh, strong resistance movement resisting United States interventions in Central America. So people had developed that ability to stop United States interventions. Now, this wasn't sufficient. That's true. But I wonder if now we might learn certainly from the Black Lives Matter movement, from uh, the young people challenging climate catastrophe, and also think back to people who at great risk to their lives sat down in squares during the Arab Spring and said, we're not going to get up. We're going to stay here. What if all those people protesting the United States going to war in 2003 had uh, occupied spaces and refused to get up and said, you know, this is more important even than the job that I'm due at tomorrow morning? You also write that we should be very sorry for wrongfully accusing the people of Iraq of harboring weapons of mass destruction while we look the other way as Israel acquired thermonuclear weapons. So, Kathy, how do you feel about President George W. Bush, who in 2003 lied us into the Iraq war, now having a 60% approval rating among Democrats? What does it say to you about even Democrats when they will apparently forget that President Bush lied us into a war? Well, that is extremely distressing. I think, again, when we look at centrists 
and militarists, we have to expect that they're going to want to protect and defend their right to make profits and to uh, sell products that should never exist in the first place. There's no defensible reason for all this weaponry to exist. And and yet uh, I think people see George Bush as uh, somebody who should be respected because he inhabited the Oval Office and uh, there's a there's an eclipse, if you will, of the history of what happened to Iraq during his tenure and that of President Clinton and that of um, George H. B. Bush. And yesterday when we were mentioning that you would be on the show, I kind of flippantly said that the United States was lied into not only the war on Iraq by President George W. Bush in 2003, but that we were also lied into war with Iraq by President George H.W. Bush in the first Gulf War, which we were. He gave misleading statements about Iraqi tanks on the Saudi border. Kathy, that just led me to a bigger question. Are we misled, if not outright lied to, when it comes to every war? Well, the idea that the United States is waging wars of necessity is, is, I believe, a lie. It's never necessary to go to war. There are always ways to pursue uh, diplomacy, to um, try to have just and fair relationships with other countries, and to stop presuming that we have an automatic right to take other people's resources at cut-rate prices. So surely, yeah, we've been lied into wars that have been marketed by people who believe, look, this is good for profit, this is good for our businesses, and it's good for us to be able to maintain bases all around the world. But you've also said that I want to be in touch with the people caught in a war at home, the war against the poor. Is all war, war on the poor? Well, I think the people who are most vulnerable to conscription, to being targeted, and to um, paying prices and then being called collateral damage. Certainly, um, the people whose supplies will be cut off when their economic war is waged are are more likely to be the most vulnerable people in society, quite often the most impoverished. And when I think about a war against the poor in the United States, I'm, of course, thinking also of the um, mass incarceration of the carceral state, of the ways in which people have been uh, forced, I think, into uh, reliance on... the only industry in town sometimes, which is the, the, the drug trade, and then um, punished relentlessly and ruthlessly. Uh, so, I, you know, when we look at the numbers of people imprisoned or in some fashion being affected by the prison industrial complex, I think it, it can be considered certainly a war against the poor. You write that if only people in the United States and the United Kingdom could take those words of I'm sorry to heart, undertaking the f- to finally pressure their governments to echo these words and themselves say, we're sorry, we're so very sorry. And we're not going to be touching on it that much today, uh, but there are a couple stories that you tell within this article at The Progressive, one about what happened when you were encamped with uh, your colleagues between the warring factions in the 1991 war and then going to the hospital and seeing the victims, children, victims of the war in Iraq. And you talk about the story of saying that 
you're sorry to the mothers of these children. Now, Australia does have a National Sorry Day, also known as the National Day of Healing. It's observed every May 26th, recognizing the horrors of past policies that allowed for the, you know, taking of indigenous children from their families, known as the Stolen Generations. There are critics who argue that's merely symbolic and has no real impact. Do you think a National Sorry Day would do the U.S. any good? And more so, what impact do you think it would have on those who were the recipients of those apologies? Well, I think the the acknowledgments that the United States has been wrongful could perhaps um, indicate that we're not going to green light that kind of um, invasion, bombing, torture, imprisonment of other people in other lands. Uh, And and it could signal that the United States uh, would be ready to try to work together with other countries to deal with the great problems that we truly face, again, thinking about the climate catastrophe. I think it could be a beginning, but I I, I see very little um, recognition within the elites that are running this country of... uh, the responsibility that the United States has for so much destruction and bloodshed all around the world. Um, I do think a beginning point would be to say we're sorry. We're so very sorry for what we've done. And as the subtitle of your article says, it's important to find ways to atone for war crimes, including reparations. When it comes to, let's say, Iraq, what would those reparations look like? What form would they take? Well, the, the the corruption and the um, divis- divisiveness within Iraq can't be underestimated. I realize that. Um, and you don't want to just flood a country with money, and you particularly ought never um, make the tasks of rebuilding linked to a country's military, ours or another country's. But I think that we, we, we should hope for the kind of imagination that uh, could pursue ways of using the United Nations for what it really was founded for, ostensibly anyway, uh, to eliminate the scourge of warfare. There are agencies within the United Nations, within the International Commission of the Red Cross, within Oxfam, Save the Children, uh, agencies that have some skills that can help people with rebuilding their economies and their agriculture and the, um, the, the, the ways that they could bring into their country uh, the goods that they need through trade. Now, I don't really myself think that uh, developing uh, the oil trade is, is a good way to help any country uh, or fossil fuel trade to help any country um, regain its ability to feed and support its its population. But um, certainly if the United States were to give uh, anything, even, even a fraction of the trillions that we've spent on the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan into perhaps an escrow account to enable uh, groups that have a track record that stayed above the levels of corruption to begin to do humanitarian relief work and help with rebuilding 
I think that would be a, a fair gesture toward reparations. We have been speaking with award-winning international peace activist Kathy Kelly, who wrote the progressive article, Remembering the First Gulf War. Kathy was on most recently on our show in July of 2019 when she talked to us about her articles for Voices for Creative Nonviolence, including The Ongoing Dread in Gaza, So Many Names, So Many Lives, and Remnants of War. Again, we want to thank Robert P., the listener who pointed us toward Kathy's article, and we really appreciate you giving us that tip. Robert, thank you very much. Kathy, one last question for you, and as you know, the final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. We got an amazing email yesterday from a listener, Courtney, who is getting ready to attend college, and she asked, what is some valuable advice for young people trying to live compassionate lives under capitalism? Adding, I do not want to be complicit or active in bringing harm to others. I'm terrified of seeing the oppressor in the mirror. You've been quoted saying one of the most important spiritual directors in my life has been the Internal Revenue Service, finding ways to live without owning property, relying on savings, or growing attached to a job. Becoming a war tax refuser was one of the simplest decisions I've ever made. Can anyone avoid being complicit when it comes to supporting the military-industrial complex and wars like that in Iraq, which included the economic war of sanctions? Can any of us be completely free of any complicity when we live in the United States? No. No, we can't. I mean, we've lived relatively well compared to people who have been pushed off their land, who've uh, watched their children starve, who've been bombed and named. Um, we can We can never say that uh, we don't have any complicity. Can we find actions commensurate to the crimes that have been committed? I, I don't think we can find actions commensurate to those crimes. But this doesn't absolve us of responsibility to keep trying, to keep collaborating, and to keep um, finding courage to overcome our fears. And where do we find that courage? I think we catch courage from one another. And to the... Um, young, earnest person who wrote to you, to Courtney, I would say a great place to start is, is, is looking for the place nearest to her where um, people are sharing food, sharing resources. Maybe it's a soup kitchen, maybe it's a shelter, maybe it's a house of hospitality. But get to know as kindred spirits people involved in that kind of effort, and a lot of other questions will be easier to address. And now you know why Kathy Kelly is my favorite guest to ever be on this show. Kathy, I cannot thank you enough. You have had, you've been such a major influence, not only just on this show, but on my life. You have given me uh, at least some sort of moral compass. It's not that I can really maintain that moral compass, but you have really been a huge influence in my life. And I cannot thank you enough. I love you, lady, and I'm going to be speaking with you far <laughs> sooner than just a couple of years. All right. Thanks, Chuck. It's always so great to hear your voice, and you've been on, on my mind and in my heart during this difficult time. All right. I love you, lady. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. 
keeping it real, real deep in debt since 1996. This is hell. And if you want to help us climb out of that debt, you can subscribe to tomorrow's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell and get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast, which streams live every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after at the same place because of our conversation yesterday with labor sociologist Ruth Milkman on her book, Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat, on the 15th anniversary of the massive march for immigrant rights here in Chicago that sparked a nationwide three-week campaign of protests, culminating in La Grande Marcha in Los Angeles, which attracted a crowd of more than a million protesters. Tomorrow on Patreon, we are sharing our interview with Alheli Herrera, youth organizer at the Illinois Commission for Immigration and or for Immigrant and Refugee Rights, an interview from one week after those protests here in Chicago to tell us what happened and why. So we're going back to 2006 and the protests that gave immigrants the DREAM Act. Meanwhile, there's a whole bunch we did not get to with our guests this week, despite interviews lasting 40 minutes or more. And there's a lot I got out of doing the pre-interview research that we never even touched on during our conversations with this week's guests, whether it was Miriam Kaba talking about abolitionism to or Ruth Milkman discussing immigration or Kathy talking war today or Courtney's letters seeking advice on how she can avoid being complicit in our system of bru- brutal cruelty and violence and poverty. There was plenty more we could have talked about, and there's a lot more to all their writing than what we discussed, and I'll be sharing what else I got out of this week's guests and this week's show on tomorrow's Patreon podcast. But you can only go back 15 years to the historic pro-immigration marches that changed immigration forever and what we didn't get to about this week's guests' writing and work by becoming a subscriber on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell and tuning in live tomorrow morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time or listening to the podcast posted shortly after the live stream. Thanks to our newest subscribers on Patreon. Thanks to Jeff, Wes, Chris, Jackson, Robot Man, Robot Man, Trish, and Erica. In a few minutes, Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth during this week's moment. Jeff visits the playground of blood, and I understand that there is a disgusting swing set in the playground of blood. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is, or today's show, I gotta get these this week's out of here. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, please remind our listeners, what is this week's question from hell, and do you have some responses? Oh, uh, yeah, we got a bunch. Uh, question from hell. What is the name of that top-secret government weed strain? What is the name of that top-secret government weed strain? Tyna Ness says, shock and awe. Dan K says, deep throat. Gorilla G says, crack. What is the name of that top-secret secret government weed strain? Austin RM says, it's called the Chuck and Jerry Special. That is disturbing. That's disturbing. It's Jerry's as in Alex's last name. Uh, Mark AC says, Moon Glow. Ooh, that sounds kind of nice. And uh, Benjamin K says, Anslinger 3000, which is very good. No, I, I really like that one, too. Uh, in fact, I don't know if I got that one in my favorites list. Who and said I, that again? Uh, that was Benjamin K. And I got a bunch, the handful after Jeffy, too. James K, was that it? Uh, Benjamin K. Ben K. Anslinger 3000. Um, good reference. The other thing I was going to uh, tell you, Alex, is Dan K., 
Do you know who, he, who he's the brother of? Yeah, and she got a book out, so I'm going to maybe bug him. Because I don't know if she's too big to get on our show now. So Isn't that funny? Let's uh, bug that guy. Dan uh, K., if you're listening, uh, look out for an email from Alex at thisishell.com. He and I are in constant contact on social media. Oh, damn, you should ask him that. And I had no freaking idea until like two days ago that his sister wrote the sixth what was it called the sixth extinction yeah and she actually has About a new the book that came out this uh this spring too elizabeth colbert yeah well the person with our favorite answer to this week's question well gets their choice of merchandise this is hell merchandise you can see all of our stuff right now at this is hell.com when you click on support you got to have your answer in now though because we're going to be na- uh, announcing this week's winner following jeff dorchin and the moment of truth pretending to know what i've been talking about since 1996 this is hell i know you have hefe on the line The Playground of Blood. The first thing you notice about children in the Tesla school district is a large percentage of them who sport wounds. It is common to see a few kids in the 4th to 7th grade age range playing, say, Foursquare, three of them missing at least an eye apiece, and two of those three with a handless wrist each, another with a prosthetic leg from the knee down, That is a hypothetical example, of course. Other permutations of amputations, mutilations, scars, and sundry disfigurements are just as frequent. I only offer that particular array of blemishes, if that is not too mild a word for these souvenirs of trauma, because it describes a group that stands out most vividly in my mind from my visit to that zone. What might register next is their poverty, a condition not noticeable at first glance. Their clothes are clean and in good repair, though a closer inspection will find a mismatched shirt button, a hand-sewn seam, a slightly frayed cuff, a discoloration in the inner collar, which together transmit an emergent impression of lack of cash. The garments echo the bodies they clothe, hand-stitched repairs in the fabric, One collar stay or belt loop missing, but it's a facile comparison. The clothes are repaired by necessity, as are the children. But depreciation to the clothes comes from extending their use through successive generations, long after more well-to-do families would have rotated them out of their wardrobes. Depreciation to the children themselves arises from something else entirely. All the streets paved in the subdivisions to the north with newly laid asphalt, and the older streets named for small liberal arts colleges, as if to mock the residents for whom such paradises of edification have forever been financially out of reach, Oberlin, Bennington, Naropa, Carlton, and such. In the neighborhoods to the south and east of the elementary school, streets of battered concrete much the worse for wear, all alike are free of trash. Bottles, broken or otherwise, do not litter them, nor any unsightly debris. Some houses may have seen days of more fastidious maintenance, but in the aforementioned subdivisions to the north, such as Lupus Circle, Meningitis Place, 
Crone's Drive or Celiac Court. The dwellings are recently built, albeit small, closely packed together, and uniform in design so that they convey a sense of modern, efficient captivity. Those subdivisions which one enters from the six-lane Tupac Shakur Boulevard are surrounded by a desolate field south of the thoroughfare, a stretch of crabgrass and weeds nibbled almost to their roots by feral goats, lending these residential loops and cul-de-sacs collectively the appearance of a forsaken outpost of urban development on a post-urban frontier. The field leads to the sand of a baseball diamond, which then gives way to a mangy rash of gravel. The rash, or infection, is the playground's ground cover and was once peopled with menacing steel play structures, which seemed to browse the sharp little stones the way the goats browse the scrub grass. Perhaps they were tall shadows of those goats. And then there is a patch of broken asphalt, and then the Gwen Stefani Elementary School building, resembling a small foundry with its towering smokestack of red brick. The children are not akin to one another because they share poverty, nor because they are physically wounded. The true common denominator is their presence on September 13th of last year on the Stefani Elementary School playground. It was during recess at 10.15 in the morning the students were all outside on the gravel, chasing each other, or playing on the swings, gossiping, fighting, kissing, reading each other letters from pages of discarded pornographic magazines, jumping from one painted concrete sewer pipe to another, climbing up and sliding down the big and little slides, or swinging and clambering outside and within the big and little spaceship skeleton monkey bars. The sun was shining on and off, beaming at the earth between the mountainous clouds, floating continents, pale and soft as heaven, and one could really have believed there were angels lounging up there among the cottony billows. The air nipped with the brisk but as yet still tame first breath of autumn, promising in only a month or so to begin to chill and blow and finally to gnaw in deep winter's insulting fashion. If there was an earthquake... Seismometers registered nothing, but the children, to the last one, report a momentary violent trembling of the air, and then there was a blank in space and time, as if those two inseparable elements were taking a long inhale, filling their lungs, swelling in all directions. The children felt a squeezing pressure. Was it the release of that pressure that precipitated everything? Or was it Sarah Martin's fall off the top of the big slide, a 16-foot brachiosaurus-looking silhouette whose laughably named safety bars grabbed or snagged or clamped her knitted scarf which snapped her neck like a hangman's noose? We'll never know how the scarf was caught because she only hung there for a moment before the monster collapsed, the sheet metal chute parting from the more solid pipe steel of the ladder. Children fell, cracking their skulls, knees, elbows, and teeth on the rungs on the way down to the razor-sharp gravel, which broke skin on impact. Where the sheet metal had parted from the pipe tower, it was an enormous blade, and then it split in two all the way down the long way, slicing arms and legs, ripping off ears, fingers, noses, partially castrating little Marvin Lurkell, 
even decapitating Bobby Morales, God rest her soul. The disaster was duplicated in miniature on the little slide. Boys and girls were thrown from the exterior of the big monkey bars or bounced and smacked horribly within the pipe steel cage until the pipes splintered, leaving spear points for children to get impaled on. Again, on the small monkey bars, an abbreviated twin tragedy played out. Bleeding, screaming children and child parts fell from the sky like hail. Swing sets that transformed into flailing octopuses of metal tossed them into the air, tangled, strangled, and flogged them with their chains. The chain-link fence separating the schoolyard from the backyards of the houses broke free from its posts and began whipping everywhere. Metal flayed the clothes from the children's backs and then flayed their skin. The painted concrete sewer pipes cracked into jagged sections. Some sections clashed back together again, jaw-like, with bone-crushing force. Many a wrist or ankle was shattered, and many an eye was scratched, gouged irreparably, or put out altogether, vile jelly decorating every pointed protrusion and concrete fang. The brutality was over in less than a minute leaving agonized kids to writhe and howl on that horrible gravel, which was no better than a bed of broken glass. The adults in the district underwent more conclusive suffering. Inside the school, the staff, administrators, and custodians were incinerated by spontaneously combusting linoleum. The unemployed adults all at home at that time of day, were overrun by a freakish tsunami of ravenous badgers, starved by severe downturns in the environment, which they may have exaggerated in their badger imaginations, having had little to consume all summer but sensationalist media coverage. They picked every bit of meat from their victims' bones as they swept through. These details were recounted to me by a 10-year-old child of indeterminate gender, their eye patch decorated with a Sailor Moon applique, a blood-red scar from their forehead to their chin. I say there, yes, there were two of them, now that I think of it, with identical wounds and a stuffed rubber cleaning glove where their right hands had been. They tell me no adult came to their aid that day, no school nurse, for she had been reduced to ash in the linoleum fire. And in any case, she wasn't a registered nurse, but only an LPN. No EMT or police, no firefighter, no representative of the private concerns outside the community took up the burden of tending to the injured miners wailing and sobbing on the playground. They were abandoned, some to die in their blood, others to struggle to their homes, where they were greeted by the ghastly remains of their family members. A playground architect from out of state, sometime later, on a trip to a First Nations casino, discovered the schoolyard by serendipity and decided then and there to initiate a project to update it with plans for safer play structures and rubberized ground cover, all fabricated from plastic to be recovered from the Pacific pollution gyre and recycled. But when they went to dismantle what was left of the old structures, the pipe steel proved more difficult than expected to remove. The footings had been sunk too deep into the earth for the architect or her assisting engineer to fathom, figuratively or literally. They might as well go all the way through the earth's crust, a member of her team told her. 
They decided to cut the pipes down and grind them so they'd be flush with the cement of the footings, at which point they intended to cap them off with safety bumpers. But while they were making the initial cut, the metallic scream of friction abruptly choked with a raspy squelch when their circular saw blade broke off, embedded in the pipe, leaving a rather wicked-looking spur jutting up, which a hapless local child, passing too near, promptly fell on, putting out his remaining eye. And so the project was abandoned as hopeless, and the architect, perturbed, returned to her home state, where she lives now in her medic seclusion, in a windowless house, deep in the woods. The children have still, nearly a year and a half later, received no outside aid. They have proven themselves remarkably resilient and capable, though, despite innumerable obstacles. Much to the chagrin of Lord of the Flies-loving Hobbesians, they've rebuilt a social structure around ethics of mutual respect and aid. Rather than falling to the tribal exclusivity, selfishness, and murder we in the world of fully grown adults so readily devolve toward, which we might expect a community of children to attempt to replicate, if only as the path of least resistance. Agriculture has come to them naturally, it seems. A few who learned gardening from their elders have passed the knowledge on to their peers. They have redomesticated the goats and raised them along with chickens and rabbits they've accumulated as strays. And so they provide for themselves, even attending to their own educations, about which I was allowed to glean only a few details. But as a curriculum for youngsters of that range of ages, it impressed me as sensible enough. Currently in its Iron Age, their society which they've named the Clangers, or Clangerville, or Clangertown, is aware that the rest of the world is observing them, perhaps maliciously. Having become expert blacksmiths, hence the Clangers, they've perfected the forging of wrought iron, mechanical parts, water pumps, decor, furniture, and architectural fixtures. But the pride of their craft are their weapons ingeniously weighted and intimidating to behold. They spar with these, and have made of themselves an adept and muscular people, their many personal physical challenges notwithstanding, and maybe even contributing to their determination and esprit de corps. On the first Saturday after each full moon, which they call, with light-hearted humor, Satan's Day, they sacrifice a goat on a plinth where the statue of Elon Musk stood before the first Satan's Day when they pulled it down and dismembered it. They play music of their own invention and dance and sing around a bonfire in the middle of the baseball diamond, built and ignited right on the pitcher's mound, and paint their faces in goat's blood, ashes, and lurid pigments, and parade the head of the sacrificial goat around on the end of a pole. And whatever they do next, I couldn't tell you because I'm ashamed to say that the intensity of their joy and the pride and triumph bursting from their hearts and throats reached such a fervent electric pitch that I fled in terror to the safety of my car and drove away as fast as I could. This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Nice Lord of the Flies scenario there, my friend. That was very intense, and I was envisioning it as you read it. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing okay. You know, I'm, I'm finding that Johnny Cash version, version of the, uh, the Look at Them Bean song compared to the Joe Tex version. 
to be kind of uh, kind of sinisterly mocking. And it kind of frightens me now when Johnny gets all enthusiastic about looking at them beans. I'm waiting for uh, Trent Reznor to reproduce that track of. Johnny well, Rose. I can talk to I can talk to his partner. Uh, what's his face? Atticus. I can't remember his last name, but he shows up at coffee all the time. I can just say, "Hey, when are you and Trent Reznor going to cover uh, Look at Them Beans" by Joe Tex? <laughs> Not the Johnny Cash version. Make sure you are that specific when you are talking to Atticus. Oh, no question about it. Of course, that'll have to wait until the people all get their vaccines. Hey, by the way, a co-worker of my girlfriend got her first vaccine, and I asked what was her pre-existing condition. She's a smoker. Oh, that's good, actually. It, right. It makes sense because it, because if yeah. you have lung damage, you're likely more susceptible to a pulmonary disease, right? So that totally makes sense. But at the same time, Starting to think about picking up smoking. Although I qualify, apparently. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing is I smoke. Can I be a smoker? I'm already a smoker. And the two other things uh, I found out is I qualify under disability, although that I would mm. feel really crappy about doing that because it's, you know, for people who have a disabled, who have a disability who need to be cared for. And, uh, right, not sexy guys like you. Exactly. Uh, who have sexy blindness like me. Um, and yeah. uh, if you're a member of the media, uh, so... The media. Yeah. That means you. You're a member of the media. Yep. Wait, am I a member of the media? <laughs> yes, you are, sir. Oh, my God. Oh, another thing to be ashamed about. <laughs> All right, Jeffy. Until next week. Yeah? Stay beautiful. Okay, you do. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz, producing... Today's show is Alex, Jerry. Alex, do we have any more answers to this week's question from Mel? Uh, here's the last of them. Via Twitter, DM, and SoundCloud comments, which I didn't know. Well, well, well. Okay, so the question from Hell is, what's the name of that top secret government weed? What's the name of that top secret government weed strain? Neil, says, Neil C says, potluck, you're on your own. Adam B says, all I can tell you is they don't sell it by the 8th. <laughs> they insist on three-fifths. That is spectacular, even though it's not a name for the weed. It doesn't really answer the question, but J- that's spectacular. J. Wayne 24 says, COVID 420. <laughs> Brian P. says, quantitative easing. <laughs> Noah, OB says, Noah OB says, uh, Green Giant New Deal X MK Ultra. Okay. Dana U. says, Capitalists Karma Kush. Hypocrite Reader sent a bunch of them. I uh, got a lot to read, so I'll just read the one. The best one that they sent was uh, Kush did 9-11. <laughs> uh, Rock Taster said, ADM PMI JV13, developed and patented by Archer Daniel Midland Industrial Hemp Seed Oils Division, partnered with Philip Morris International for commercialization and distribution, all funded by grant provided under HB 420, Cannabis Capitalization Act of 2021. It sounds like there's a lot of price fixing going on there. Flying N says, stanky fa. <laughs> and then finally, uh, my favorite one, I think, is, um, where is it? Uh, Kibbles, this is a via SoundCloud comments, wrote, MJ Ultra. Yeah, I saw that too. I really like Gorilla Gramophonics saying crack. Uh, Kibbles saying MJ Ultra. I did like COVID 420 from Jay Wayne. Quantitative easing is pretty funny, although that's not 
quite as timely as it used to be. Marjorie Taylor's Green is very timely and pretty funny. Aaron had a few. Mars Explorer, Sour Mega, which I really liked. Hellabuster, Black Ops, or simply Space Force, because the person that thought of creating that branch had to be stoned. Uh, there were a few that were a little bit... I liked them, but they were all too much alike. Uh, Kevin saying, Cointel Kush, Liberty Skunk, MK Ultra Haze. Jacob saying, Kush Intel Pro, and more timely, David C. saying Jared O.G. Kushner. I liked Bradley saying Corn Pop, and Mark saying J. Edgar Reefer. Benjamin K.'s Anslinger 3000 was great, and Alan had three really good ones, but they're more Bush era. Extra, extra Judicial Kush, Antara Groshan, Extreme Green Dition. So I'm really not sure. Boy, MJ Ultra is really good. Let's go with MJ Ultra from Kibbles. You're right, Alex. That's the best one. It's the most timely, and that's pretty clever. I like that one. So, Hypocr- MJ- Hypocrite Reader came up with that independently, too, but it was like uh, four hours later than uh, Kibbles. Yeah, and I know somebody else had it. It's MK Ultra Haze, but MJ Ultra is definitely better. God, I like quantitative easing, though. But again, it's not quite timely enough. So, Kibbles, you are the winner of this week's Question Mail. All you have to do is just... Send us your mailing address and tell us which piece of This Is Hell merchandise that you can see right now at thisishell.com when you click on support, which piece you want, and we will get it in the mail to you. Post haste, my answer to this week's question from hell, what's the name of that top secret government weed strain? What's the name of that top secret government weed strain? With a hat tip to a friend who is a professional marijuana grower, legal professional marijuana grower, and at one point grew a a strain that had uniquely high levels of THC. So he asked his distributors, let's call them distributors, to come up with a name. And the name they came up with denoting the strength of the strain was heroin, which is probably the worst name ever given to any strain of weed ever. Thanks, everyone, for sending in your answers to this week's question from hell. We start every week's live streaming shows here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's hangover cure. And this week's cure is salty lemonade or fresh lime soda. Thanks to this week's guest, Miriam Kaba, author of We Do This Till We Free Us, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice. You can find out more about Miriam at her website, miriamkaba.com thanks to yesterday's guest, sociologist Ruth Milkman, author of Immigrant Labor and the New Precariat. You can find out more about Ruth at her website, ruthmilkman.info. And thanks to today's guest, peace activist Kathy Kelly, who wrote the progressive article remembering the first Gulf War. Thank you so much, Kathy, for being back on our show. And you can find four of our past interviews, four or five of our past interviews with Kathy at our website right now, thisishell.com, when you search on Kelly. Talk to you tomorrow on Patreon when we will be playing our conversation with Alele Herrera, youth organizer at the Illinois Commission for Immigrant and Refugee Rights from one week after the historic march supporting immigration that took place here in Chicago back in 2006. And I'll be sharing not only what I got out of this week's guests, but what was never mentioned because we simply did not have time, like how I personally witnessed the negative blowback that those immigration actions and marches received from racist white supremacists in my family. But again, you can only hear that tomorrow on Patreon live at 10 a.m. Chicago time or podcast at the same place shortly after. Also, one more time, thanks to our newest subscribers on Patreon, Jeff, Wes, Chris, Jackson, Robot Man. 
Trish and Erica. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lowest position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>